Welcome to the Lumpin Week in Review, the show that presents the best of Lumpin Radio each week. This week, we chatted about an unsolved murder in our own neighborhood, talked about the aftermath of the Flint water crisis, and chewed over Chicago sports on the eve of a new baseball season. This plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now and the Biden Files. It's the Lumpin Week in Review for February 5th, 2021. The boys from I-94 spoke with Jeff Cohen, the author of Murder in Canaryville, Cohen, an editor and crime reporter at the Tribune, discussed the unusual nexus of politics, power, and mob crime in the 11th Ward, and how it led to a 1976 shooting death going unsolved. Cohen identifies the probable killer, but notes that the real story is the cover-up and how family ties led to justice undone. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, is every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. Jeff Cohen is joining us. He is the author of a brand new book called Murder in Canaryville, the true story behind a cold case and a Chicago cover-up. It's out right now from Chicago Review Press. Jeff, thanks for joining us this morning. Hello, guys. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Jeff is also an editor now at the Chicago Tribune. Uh, And of course, Jeff, you covered crime and, and true crime, I guess, for years with the Tribune, right? How long have you been there? I've been there since 1998, and you're right. I've got a background in uh, crime and court coverage. I got to 26 in California about 2002 and did several years there and then went to uh, the federal courthouse after that. Okay, so and of course you uh, also, people with long memories about Chicago literature, uh, Jeff also wrote a book, a very well-received book called Family Secrets about a famous case here, and we'll probably touch on that in a little bit. But this book is actually based in our neighborhood. People know uh, WLPN is actually based here in Bridgeport. Jeff, I want to start off with kind of the obvious question when I read this book, and uh, it's a good quick read, by the way, guys, if, you, if you're interested in true crime. I, I happen to read this, I think, in oh, I a night. it was great. Yeah, a fun book. Jeff, uh, a murder is committed basically under floodlights at a neighborhood park. Uh, It's a group of kids in the 1970s. The kids all know each other. Uh, A young woman sees the uh, person in the car drive by and calls out to him by a childhood nickname. Uh, A young man is shot. He later dies at Mercy Hospital. This seems like an open and shut case. I mean, the cops know everybody in Canaryville and and Bridgeport. I know everybody in Bridgeport. I've been here for 25 years and my neighbors know me up and down. How come this case was never solved? Yeah, that was the dynamic that I found right away. I'm um, talking about your neighborhood there, just the interwoven nature of it. And that was the impression by some of the guys who worked it even decades later. They said, we should have had this thing solved even that night or you know a day or two at the most because everybody knew everybody. It's not the Lindbergh baby or some big uh, <laughs> murder mystery. It's a group of kids fighting in the, in a park, which they do, you know, basically every other weekend down there, at least at this time um, along Irish and Italian lines back then. Um, and this feud had been ongoing. They'd been at a house party earlier in the night that had uh, gotten heated. There'd been some pushing and shoving there. They had gone back and forth uh, in traffic on Halstead a little bit earlier and they wound up at uh, Boyce Field, um, the Irish kids kind of taking a breath, and a car pulls through, and uh, a group of the Irish kids rush this car, which uh, some of the old-timers down there have told me that when this would happen, and this actually isn't in the book, this has come out <laughs> since it came out, that there was a game that they would play that some of them would rush the cars and, uh, and see who could tag the car first, and, you know, just to kind of show their courage, it's not clear whether that was happening here or not, but a group of Irish kids run at this car and this time a shot comes out the uh, passenger window and strikes a teenager named John Hughes 
uh, right in the chest and he dies. This is May 1976. And, you know, just for people that don't know the dynamics of this neighborhood, uh, you know, Canaryville and Bridgeport abut each other. Uh, the parks you mentioned in this book, McGain Park, is uh, really right down the street from where we're taping this. Mm-hmm. It's the park at um, Halstead and, and basically 31st. Uh, ball games are played there. The American Legion plays there. Boyce Field is, you know, across Pulaski. It's it's a little further down, but literally. Not Pulaski. Uh, not, but no, but not Pulaski. It's Canaryville basically yeah, starts yeah, in yeah. Pulaski. I mean, basically, if you were minded to, you could easily bicycle there. You could walk there if you wanted. It's a three-minute oh, yeah. car ride. These these people all grew up with each other, and they all knew each other. They went to high school together. Yeah, everybody was in the same schools here. And and Jeff, you know that that dynamic still continues in this neighborhood. You know, Jeremy works as the librarian over here in the Bridgeport district, and one of the things that I found surprising when I first moved here 25 years ago, we were all transplants. Uh, Jeff and uh, mm-hmm. Jeremy and, and Michael from Detroit. Um, you know, I was the first guy that moved into my block that had not been born in the neighborhood that people could remember. Now, I've been here 25 <laughs> years, and everybody in Bridgeport knows me because of, you know, my job here at the radio station and, and other things around. Everybody knows Jeremy uh, because of his job as a librarian. But that's also kind of my point. Everybody knows each other, and everybody yeah, knows each other's mothers, and everybody knows each other's families. <laughs> and they, and and I, I was just just sorry, Jamie, sorry to cut you off, but Mike and I um, have a unique situation in the neighborhood, and we know a lot of the old timers. And a couple of our friends were be, uh, like, I'm not going to say names. But one of my friends was like, oh, I knew Horse, one of the guys that was mentioned in the book. And uh, apparently Mike and I had crossed paths with uh, Rocky also. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no kidding. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and that was kind of what I was getting to. You know, the, the book is so tangled. I think all of us reading the book, we actually knew people in the book. That or, was, that or was, relatives. Or sure. relatives of the book. Jeff, when you when you started doing this, yep. I mean, I, you've had a long career in, in journalism and crime here. Is there another, first of all, is there any place else like this in Chicago where, you know, everything seems so incestuous? And were you kind of surprised that, you know, this this was such a tightly woven community? I was surprised, honestly. So I'm a, I'll go ahead and confess, um, more of a North Sider. I live in Wicker Park right I was, now. I was going to ask you where you grew up, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're yeah, not actually, from here, I though. Up, we're not from here. I grew here, up so. in the, uh, well, I'm an East Coast Irish uh, family myself, but I was an Army brat, and we moved here when uh-huh. I was in kindergarten. I spent a lot of time in the Western suburbs, and I've moved around a lot, Oak Park and, and places and in the city. Was your dad um, at uh, Great Lakes? No, he was not. He was, uh, he was army and we wound up, um, he was, he went to Vietnam as an officer. And okay. actually at that, at that point you could bring your, when you're an officer, you could bring your, uh, wife and kids. So my first two birthdays were in uh, Bangkok, Thailand, but Holy cow. That's, that's another show. But anyway, so when I was, uh, you know, I've have a long history in the city, obviously as a journalist and, and being here and living here. Um, and everybody in Chicago, thinks that their neighborhood is like that kind of very uh ingrained in in the fabric of families and everything bridgeport and canaryville are really really like that part of chicago used to be like that yeah they are the very they are kind of the essence of what the city used to be honestly some of the stereotypes of the city are actually really true down there still very interconnected a lot of um you know people with uh, real ethnic backgrounds from families that, uh, you know, they're only one, two, three generations removed from, um, 
places in Europe and so forth. So it, you really have uh, kind of the, the basic uh, version of Chicago there in a good way. I mean, very like salt of the earth people. And I had the same experience that the uh, main detective in the book, Jim Sherlock, had, honestly. He found as he, when he started investigating this, that word spread very fast there that he was back on this case and everybody a lot of people he dealt with remembered the case and periodically it would come back up you know 20 or 30 years ago it had been another cold case investigation and investigators had come around so i found the same thing when i started making calls because as a journalist i wanted to recreate as much of this as possible and talk to some of the witnesses myself and it took about five minutes for me to call somebody and they'd be like, Oh, I knew you were coming. I heard from so-and-so and so, and so, <laughs> so that, uh, that, that was going to happen. So yeah, I was, I was impressed by um, the very tight and insular nature of those neighborhoods in a good way. I, everybody that I dealt with and met there, like I said, just kind of salt of the earth personalities and uh, you know, give you the shirt off their back, all those old cliches you want to throw out. They're all true down there. I don't know if it's like this now, but, but back then you it wasn't just that everybody knew each other, but you you knew who had clout. You knew who not to mess with. Um, and we're just down the street from from De La Salle High School, yeah. Yeah. And it's like f- five mayors, four mayors graduated from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, well, Bri- there's five mayors from Bridgeport. I think they all. Went yeah, there. Bridgeport yeah. was a center of of power, really. And uh, Canaryville, it doesn't seem like so much i don't i don't know you'll you'll have to fill me in on that jeff but that that's a big uh part of this story is is the the people with power in bridgeport and what they were able to to manipulate and and hide and i was talking to another friend of mine about this book that also grew up here and he his dad was a cop and he said that his crew the guys he ran with this this was like 10 10 years after this but he he's like no one ever got arrested he's like we would do we get in fights, people get stabbed, you know, and like it would get broken up and, and and nobody ever got arrested. He's like, that's just the way it was, you know, and I don't know if that was because his father was a police officer, but he also ran with another guy that we're friends with whose family was not police officers. They were on the other team, you know, <laughs> and they never got arrested either, you know, yeah. and I just think it's just there was yeah. like this, it's almost like this web of clout well a lot of yeah politically connected families and cops kids and firefighter kids and you're right i mean as far as clout goes everybody knew who was running the show where and that was part of the remarkable nature of this story to me was that this took place right in the backyard of that i mean this police district is down the street from the ancestral daily house um, it happens to an Irish kid. Obviously, the dailies are Irish. Everybody's at the same churches. And it was just really amazing to see really two sides of, uh, of that kind of Chicago apparatus kick in to, you know, uh, I think everybody believes protect some of the kids who were probably involved in this on the political side and then also on the organized crime side. Um, so that to me, just as a you know, journalist here, was especially fascinating. <laughs>
Mario Smith spoke with ESPN's Jonathan Hood about the upcoming sports season, the protests roiling America, and how COVID has changed the game. Hood, who will cover the White Sox next season on the team's new flagship network, also talked about the expectations for the team and why owner Jerry Reinsdorf is trying to win now. News from the service entrance is every Thursday at 2 p.m. You know, when I started catching on to you was at the very beginnings of WSTR, of the score. Mm-hmm. And and you were one of two black voices, three black voices, because it was yourself, Jerry Riles, Dan Jiggins. Mm-hmm. And, and, if, and if I'm missing any black people, please let me know. Um, Tommy Williams. And Tommy Williams. Thank you. I knew it was one. Um then at that at the beginnings of what turns out to be probably the greatest city to have a sports talk radio station in, um, it was kind of rough times for for the beginnings of that that outfit. But you guys were the voices of it and connected really quickly with the hood and with people who looked and sounded a lot like you. What was it like back then in that time? to be on that just on the score, but to also have a, a, a responsibility you may not have even thought you were having or wanted. So Mario, I was working uh, while I was at KKC in college at Kennedy King College. I was working at Jewel mm. and I was an interior shelf decorator, um, which is a fancy term for stacking shelves. Um, and so as an interior shelf decorator, I'm sitting in the parking lot at the jewel on 91st and commercial and I'm opening up the paper and Robert Peter and his media column said, there's going to be a new sports radio station because coming to Chicago, because that was foreign to the city. New York had one, Dallas had one with the ticket, New York had Mm -hmm. one with the band and Chicago didn't have an all sports format on the radio. And so I looked at that and I pointed to that piece in the paper and said, you know what? I want to be part of that. I want to do that. And so from there was able to obtain an internship, which was rare for me because I came from Kennedy King college. Uh, Mm -hmm. People, people that look like me and you don't get those opportunities coming from a junior college. Um, And so interning with Tom share in the morning, and that was an education and then working my way through um, it was it's just a great opportunity because it's something I wanted to do. I went after it. Uh, and to be able to work with Dan Jiggett, someone I grew up watching on CBS, you know, people see James Brown now. Well, that was Jiggett's a long time ago. Yeah. That, like, exactly. Jiggett was in that doing those, those CBS sports breaks, got the eye jacket on and to be able to work with him uh, was great. And uh, Jerry Riles and be able to work with him. I heard his play by play of Loyola, um, years ago before I actually met him in 92. So it, it just, everything just fell into place. And for Black voices to be on the score, I just think that brought everybody into the tent. More, than, more so than just one set of people, it brought everybody into the tent because it was so new and fresh. I know we got to move <clears throat> kind of quick because I want to make sure that we get everything. But I do want to tell you the wrestling show with you and Lawrence uh, was when I was like, okay, <laughs> he ain't going nowhere. They're going to be around for a while. That was such a good time, man. That was such a good time. Yeah, well, I, you know, Jeff Schwartz, the program director at the time, said, I know you know wrestling. And it was the height of the Monday Night Wars where on one channel would be World Championship Wrestling on the Turner mm-hmm. Television and the WWF would be on USA Network. He said, what if? And that's the two biggest words in entertainment, Mario. Like, what if? 
what yep. if we had a wrestling show after those two shows that were going head to head on cable and did like a post game wrap up show between 10 and midnight on Monday nights. And I said, sure. And those numbers exploded. You know, I started off first. Lawrence was my producer. I said, Lawrence, you know this as well as I do. You should be my co-host on this. So it makes it an even. And, and by the way, Lawrence had to be my co-host because it was two shows to watch. It was WCW and WWF. I said, how about this? You go in this room and watch the WWF. I'll watch WCW and we'll compare notes uh, when the show starts. And that's why he was added because I couldn't watch four hours of wrestling in a two-hour block. Um, wow. and, and he knew it well. So... Um, it was something that was very unique at the at the time because there was no all all wrestling show for two hours on a Monday night, and so you know I was happy to be an innovator in that regard. I see the careers of you and Jason Goff and Lawrence Holmes, and I I'm, I say it all the time, and every time somebody asks me, I I say it. If not for the three of you guys, man, I would have probably said screw this a long time ago. So I, I'm telling you, thank you now. <laughs> and I'll say thank you to you again, but all three of you guys, I say it every time I see you, even if it's like just out and I bump into one of those two guys, I haven't seen you as much as I would like, but I tell them all the time. Thank you. So I'm saying it to you, man. Thanks. Well, um, I appreciate that. No doubt. Um, okay. New home of the Chicago White Sox. You got this brand new morning show. And by the way, when you see Mr. Kaplan, the, world, the, the, the best dressed man on television, tell him to relax about snowfall. Okay. It snows. <laughs> I know. I heard all of that. It yeah, snows. I know. I know. It's <laughs> yeah. Well, the, what we got on him about is that yes, it snows, and it's okay to shovel your own walk. That's right. Uh, I, like, like, listen, guys like you would not be paying four hundred ninety dollars every winter to have your driveway and walk because we're not even getting the winters that we had back in the day. So the idea they could throw out that NBC Sports Chicago money <laughs> and spend that much money on like two or three inches. Like, dude, you must have yeah. it like because I couldn't do it. Well, you see his suits. He, he dresses very nicely. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, <laughs> that's the dream, isn't it? Yes, what I'm to, talking about. To, to wear uh, test-pattern test uh, suit jacket <laughs> and to pay 500 bucks to get your walks shovel. That's pretty cool. That's a good life. Um, before we even talk about baseball, and, and, and then I'm going to end just talking about football. Yeah, um, Hank Aaron made his transition um uh over the weekend and i know for me myself uh, uh growing up uh, uh, right the year my mother died the next year hank aaron hit 715 mm -hmm. so i was in that place as a as a six seven year old kid where i was just stuck and i didn't know up from down and i in reflecting about his life i think i kind of came out of whatever darkness i was in by looking at him and watching him play and even though they weren't on all the time, those NBC game of the week games, most of the time, especially leading up to 715, those were games with either the Cincinnati Reds or with the Atlanta Braves because everybody wanted to catch that home run on television. He was such a polarizing athlete and a humanitarian once those playing days and even while he was playing. But once those playing days were over, he was just an amazing figure and his loss this past weekend really shook me up on a personal level what 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 are your um memories if you will of frank i mean frank of hank aaron I, you know mario i think about um 
I think about someone that was a difference maker in our society, right? So he went through what Jackie Robinson went through, which so many black players had to go through. When you're the first to do something, uh, it is very noteworthy. And so for the amount of stress that he had, and, and you know, we, we talk about stress and we talk about emotional issues that a lot of people have, but I mean, you think about the amount of pressure on Hank Aaron, where we have letters across the country saying, you're black and Babe Ruth is white and he'll always be the home run king. Do not hit that home run to surpass Babe or we'll, we'll, uh, we'll kill you or we'll go after your family or, you know, all of these uh, racial epitaphs that he had to deal with. The amount of stress that guys like him and Jackie Robinson and, and those that were the first to be able to do it was enormous. That's the first thing I think about. Second thing I think about is when he hit that home run, those two white folks were behind him. I said, you know, at the time, if I'm watching that live, I'm like, oh my God, is he going to be okay? Because I didn't, you didn't know if they were chasing him or celebrating with him. You right. remember this, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, so I'm watching this and like, wow, I remember seeing it as a kid. I'm like, I know that he broke the record, but even during that time, because he had so much stress on him, I'm like, I hope that he's going to be okay getting around the bases, and he did. So I celebrate him because he was able to handle that stress. You know, I know I love how many tried to rewrite history like, oh, you know, Hank did this with a smile on his face, and he was happy the whole time. No, he wasn't. Mm. It was, no, he wasn't happy. We we have to stop trying to rewrite history to think that here's someone that was much maligned, uh, whether it's in the media or through fans, for being the person that he was. And yet he was smiling the whole time. No, there was stress and there was anger that he had to go through that. Um, but you know what? He did it with class. And then afterwards, working with the Braves organization and, and being in the community, that resonates with me as well. So I will always have a, a spot in my heart as a baseball fan for Aaron, for him to be able to break the record, go through what he go, went through, and came out whole on the other side. Two more baseball things really quick, because I can't go into the 0.8 manager, because I'll just get angry, and I don't want to waste the remaining time being angry about that. Take your but, time. Take your but, time. <laughs> you, you, look, you're a Sox fan. You, if you have a problem with La Russa, you need to talk. you need to get this out. Okay. Don't hold that inside. That's not good. All right, fine. You know what? I, I, I look at the, the, the constitution of this ball club. I look at how they have been constructed and how close they are to really pulling it off. Not just a World Series, but a couple of them in this extended championship run that they are about to be in. They've built this magnificent pitching staff up and hopefully everybody's arm stays on their body and nobody's legs fall off or anything like that. They've got one of the greatest lineups in the history of the Chicago White Sox right now. Um, easily. If everybody pans out, nobody gets hurt. They don't have a DH yet. I get it. But then you bring in Tony La Russa. And with Tony La Russa, I understand the pedigree and all. And I know he hasn't been totally out of baseball. But there's, <laughs> there's just so many questions about how he connects with this kind of ball player. Here's where I am with him and why I think maybe it's a good hire. He's, he's managed Ricky Henderson. He managed uh, Jose Canseco, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. he, he managed, um, uh, uh, what's his face? Hit the home Mark runs McGuire. with Sammy Sosa. McGuire. He's, he's, he's managed different personalities over his career and handled them well. I see those St. Louis years, though, and I'm like, I don't know if I want that dude in that clubhouse. I remember the winning ugly years. 
And I'm kind of on the fence about those years with him in that clubhouse. How does he do it with this team? They've given him a two-year deal. So the White Sox are saying, we're either doing it this year or we're doing it next year, but we're about to do it, and you're going to be the guy to make it happen. How do you think this is going to play out with Larusa? Well, the hope is, is that with him being the manager, that they can win a World Series championship. And I think we got to know on the front end that Larusa and uh, Reinsdorf are friends. They're, they they both live in Arizona. They're both friends. They know each other's families very well. And I think that the first time around, Larusa shouldn't have been fired, but Hawk Harrelson was the general manager. Oh boy! Made that, so he made that choice. But it shows you the loyalty of Reinsdorf, right? A, a one-year GM. And they fire a guy that got you to the pennant in 83, uh, at least to win the division in 83. So, uh, you know, I, I, um, I think that Reinsdorf says, okay, I'm going to right this wrong. I'm going to get a guy that I want. Keep in mind, this is not a Rick Hahn hire. This is, what, this is what Jerry wanted. He wanted his friend to be the manager, the front face of this organization with this young group and mixed with veterans. Now, now peep this. He's doing this, Mario, in the eyes of a pandemic. Where mm-hmm. there's nobody at ballparks, I mean, and no, no revenue coming in, but yet he's spending money that's not there. He's spending money and going deep into the coffers to try to put a winner on the field for Tony. He didn't do that for Rick Renneria. He didn't do that for Robin. He didn't do that for Ozzy as much, quite frankly, because that 05 championship came out of nowhere. But he's d- digging deep for Tony. So, listen... I have my reservations. I've said it on the air on the White Sox flagship now that I have reservations about Tony being the manager because of his off-the-field shenanigans. And also, I need to know whether or not he has uh, turned an about-face about how he deals with and manages African-American players. So, you know, the, the hope is is that no matter what goes on with Tony, this team can win and find a way to win a championship, no matter who the manager is. Because I tell you what, for Sox fans to say I'm not going to the games or I'm pissed off that LaRusse is the manager and all that, so I'm not going, that's nonsense. I'm rooting for the players in the field. Even if I don't feel as strongly for Tony, it's fine. I'm rooting for the team because it's always a team first. Size matters, size matters, size matters with Kyle Seismankowski. On this episode of Size Matters, Nothing matters. I got no producer. I got no skills to be my own producer. And I still don't even know what a producer does. These are arbitrary titles and they run amok. Like the title boss. A boss is supposed to be a leader, but more often than not, a boss just exudes authority, squashes dreams, and picks favorites. Most people learn too late that they don't need a boss. You got to believe in your own dream. You can't let some short-sighted middle management type try and dictate what you dream and when you dream it. And John Petrowski taught me one thing. It's don't stop quitting. Escape. So here I sit, talking into a micro-cassette recorder, not giving up on my dream. My dream, not his. Do I need a producer, someone to tell me what I ain't doing right, or do I need someone who's going to tell my story. For now, I shall drink the drink, and I shall do the other thing, too. So from Size Matters, this is Kyle Seismankowski saying, don't stop, quit it, quit it, don't stop. If you're interested in the producer job, talk to Jamie 
Ed Logan or John Daly or some other boss. Now the outro music. Back to the guys in the radio station. Space station. This week on The Biden Files, the GOP's civil war heats up with a QAnon ally at the center of it. Biden continues to sign orders at a breakneck pace. The U.S. appears to be losing the race in vaccinations. Democrats go it alone on COVID relief. And Trump sacks his lawyers. These are The Biden Files. Day 10, January 29th. President Biden continued his blitz of executive orders, signing two more to expand access to reproductive health care and give Americans more health insurance through the Affordable Care Act. Biden said that Trump had changed by fiat the ACA process, and he was just restoring it. A special enrollment period now opens from February 15th to May 15th, giving Americans who lost their insurance due to the pandemic another chance to get some. Biden also unwound the so-called Mexico City policy, which prohibited international nonprofits from receiving U.S. funding if they provide abortions. Health officials warn the U.S. is now in a race against new variants of the coronavirus. Several variants are now emerging that could make COVID harder control with vaccine. The Kent variant is more contagious and a new mutation makes it harder for antibodies to grab onto the virus, which could foil vaccines. Another variant from Brazil called P1 appears to be 70% more transmissible and a new mutation known as E484K appears to be crossing over to all coronavirus strains, signaling the disease is adapting to try and foil treatments. U.S. officials say the country now has about six weeks to try to vaccinate as many people as possible to get ahead of it, and if not, could fail to meet herd immunity. In a related and troubling story, Manaus in Brazil, which was thought to have herd immunity, is now under siege from that P1 variant. The city, which saw an infection rate in excess of 70%, is now seeing reinfection, which is leading scientists to worry the virus is adapting faster than humans can. Trump apparently spent $200 million to send more than 8,700 ventilators to countries around the world last year. But the administration did not track them, and the USA now has no idea where they are. A government accountability office report said it was unable to identify where the Trump administration's criteria used for what ventilators went to what countries and why. House Republicans appointed a new representative from Georgia who has repeatedly called school shootings a hoax to the committee overseeing education. Marjorie Taylor Greene said that the Parkland massacre that killed 17 students was a false flag. She also posted a video of herself verbally harassing a Parkland survivor who was visiting Capitol Hill to lobby for gun safety measures. Another post showed Greene endorsing executing top Democrats. And Arizona introduced a bill that would give that state's legislature the ability to revoke the Secretary of State's election certification at any time before the presidential inauguration. The bill, if it passes, would allow the legislature, which is currently controlled by Republicans, to throw out the public's vote by majority vote at any time before the inauguration. Day 11, January 30th. The Trump administration's relocation of the Bureau of Land Management headquarters to the West, which was designed to shift power away from D.C., prompted more than 87% of their employees to quit or resign. A disproportionate number of black employees left, and in some departments, such as those overseeing land use and gas and oil drilling, were completely gutted. Trump's rally at the Capitol on January 6th was funded in part by a top Trump campaign donor and Alex Jones. 
the heiress to the public supermarkets chain of Florida, Julie Jenkins Fancelli, donated about $800,000. Jones was the go-between. Fancelli also used Carolyn Wren, who was a deputy to Don Trump Jr.'s girlfriend, Kimberly Guilfoyle, to organize the event with Ali Alexander. Alexander is the leader of the Stop the Steal movement. Publix has been recently criticized as being the epicenter for Florida's vaccine rollout, despite the fact that their supermarkets largely avoid poor areas and communities of color. Since the biggest election turnout in history, Republicans have introduced 106 bills in 28 states that would restrict access to voting. Republicans and Trump have basically claimed fraud despite the fact that the 2020 election was apparently the most secure in American history. Trump also repeatedly claimed that if everyone voted, Republicans would never again win elections. Some House lawmakers are now privately refusing to work with each other, with particular worry centered on two new members, Lauren Baybert and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Baybert from Colorado is suspected of being one of several GOP reps who gave tours to rioters who scouted the Capitol in advance of the January 6th riot. Greene has continued to make bizarre public statements, including claiming that California's wildfires were caused by a space laser controlled by Jewish bankers. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in a statement warned, quote, the enemy is within. And Scotland's government is using its McMafia laws to look at Trump's purchase of property and golf courses in that country. Holyrood has apparently received evidence that suggests the funding behind the purchases was unexplained. And under British money laundering laws, that is impermissible. Day 12, January 31st. Trump and the Republican Party raised $255.4 million in the weeks following the November 3rd election. Trump raised that money claiming it would go to legal efforts. However, almost none of it was spent on lawyers, legal cases, or recount efforts. Instead, the majority of it went into Trump's PAC, which has been called a slush fund, and the RNC committee. The Pentagon has suspended the processing of a number of Trump's last-minute appointees to defense advisory boards. Trump had appointed allies such as former campaign workers Corey Lewandowski and David Bossie to key panels. The Biden team is also looking to replace dozens of Trump's last-minute appointments and commissions across the government, particularly at the Department of Homeland Security. And the Congressional Budget Office now projects the economy will recover to its pre-pandemic size by the middle of 2021, faster than previously expected. However, the office also predicts a long period of extended and devastating unemployment, which will exacerbate income inequality. Day 13, February 1st. A group of 10 senators led by Susan Collins of Maine made a lowball compromise offer to President Biden and Democrats on Sunday, offering $600 billion in relief. Democrats rejected that out of hand and signaled they were ready to use reconciliation to pass their $1.9 trillion relief bill that would aid both cities and citizens. Biden said he, however, would meet with Republicans at the White House. Trump reportedly parted ways with five lawyers who were to handle his impeachment defense one week before his Senate trial set to begin. Trump had reportedly pushed for his defense team to focus on his false claim that the election was stolen from him. Trump also insisted that his case is simple and has told advisors he could argue it himself and save the money on lawyers. The Biden administration said it would buy 8.5 million at-home, over-the-counter COVID-19 rapid tests. That test, made by Loom, says it can detect COVID with roughly 95% accuracy within 15 minutes. Trump actively lobbied Congress to deny states any extra funding for the vaccine rollout last fall, claiming that states did need the money because $200 million provided by the government earlier in the year remained unspent. In fact, that money apparently was not dispersed. It is estimated that the vaccine rollout will cost $7.3 billion nationwide. Also, Trump apparently sent some 20 million vaccine doses to states that have not been administered. It is unclear where those doses are or if they even exist. 
and a New York judge dealt Trump yet another legal loss, ordering his tax firm to turn over documents to New York Attorney General Letitia James. The Trump organization had argued that his documents are protected by attorney-client privilege. The judge rejected that argument with prejudice. James is investigating if Trump artificially inflated and lowered the values of his properties to obtain loans and defraud tax collectors. Day 14, February 2nd. The White House played down a meeting between President Biden and Senate Republicans on coronavirus relief legislation, with Biden said to be more concerned that his proposed $1.9 trillion package is too small instead of too big. The 10 GOP senators proposed a lowball $618 billion package, which was met with derision by the Democratic caucus. The civil war in the Republican Party continues to rage, with Republican leader Mitch McConnell calling newly elected Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene on Monday a cancer. Saying she dealt in loony lies, McConnell attacked Greene for her flurry of odd statements and threats against fellow lawmakers. Greene responded by saying that McConnell was weak and a loser. The real cancer for the Republican Party is weak Republicans who only know how to lose gracefully. McConnell also released a statement defending Representative Liz Cheney, who has come under fire for voting to impeach Trump. House Republicans have so far taken no action on Greene. Democrats have moved their offices away from her and introduced a measure to strip her of committee assignments. And Trump has apparently hired two and unusual new lawyers to represent him at his impeachment trial next week. Following the sudden departure of his entire legal team last weekend, Trump has hired a lawyer who declined to charge Bill Cosby when he was attorney general in Pennsylvania. And another who represented mafia figures met with Jeffrey Epstein and is trafficked in conspiracy theories. Trump reportedly wants his legal team to focus on his false claim the election was stolen from him. Lawyers are trying to convince him this is unwise. Day 15, February 3rd. The House will argue that the riot at the Capitol on January 6th was the direct result of a campaign by Trump to undermine American democracy and overthrow the election at any cost. In a pre-trial filing, they warned that acquitting him and failing to disqualify him from future office will do grave damage to the nation. The House alleges that Trump will do anything to reassert his grip on power if he's allowed to seek election again. Trump's new legal team argued in response that the Constitution did not permit the Senate to try a former president after he had left office. This is untrue. The Senate has tried former officials in the past. Trump's lawyers also denied he was factually in error when he claimed the, he had won the election in a landslide, claiming, quote, insufficient evidence exists upon which a reasonable jurist conclude that the 45th president's statements were accurate or not, and he therefore denies that they were false. The statement appeared to have been assembled in rushed fashion. It was addressed to the United States Senate. Russian dissident Alexei Navalny has been sentenced to three and a half years in jail for allegedly violating the terms of a 2014 conviction. That conviction, which a European high court ruled was politically motivated, is likely to send Navalny to a penal colony. It is also likely to make him a political martyr. Navalny, who has become a leading thorn in the Kremlin's side, was arrested after he dramatically returned to Russia after recovering from an assassination attempt. Russia's police alleged Navalny had violated the terms of his parole by not checking in, this while he was undergoing treatment for poisoning in Germany. Navalny's arrest and jailing has been met by massive street protests in Russia. The Biden administration said it will send vaccine doses to pharmacies across the nation. Biden's team said they would begin shipping roughly 1 million doses per week to about 6,500 pharmacies nationwide. The administration is hoping to send ultimately 10.5 million doses per week. The Justice Department withdrew a lawsuit that alleged Yale University violated federal civil rights law by discriminating against white and Asian American undergraduate applicants. Trump had filed several such lawsuits which aimed to chip away at affirmative action. 
The administration also called Trump's policy of separating families at the southern border a moral failing, calling it limited, wasteful, naive, and a failed strategy. Biden said they were looking to reunite those families. Also, the Senate confirmed Alejandro Mayorkas as Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. He is now the first Latino and immigrant to lead the DHS. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin fired hundreds of members of the Pentagon's policy advisory boards. Trump had attempted to back those boards with people described as partisan hacks. Austin also directed the immediate suspension of all committee operations, while the Pentagon completes a zero-based review of at least 42 committees. Austin also suspended the onboarding process for Trump administration nominees to Pentagon advisory boards. And the Senate confirmed Pete Buttigieg as Transportation Secretary. He becomes the first openly gay cabinet secretary. Buttigieg was confirmed with bipartisan support with a vote of 86 to 13. Day 16, February 4th. The House impeachment managers unexpectedly called on Trump to testify before or during his Senate trial next week, seeking to question him on the record and under oath about his actions on January 6th, when he is accused of inciting the riot by a mob of his supporters at the Capitol. It is unlikely his lawyers will let him. A whistleblower complaint says a top Trump Homeland Security official sought to constrain the Biden administration's immigration agenda by agreeing to hand policy controls to the pro-Trump union representing immigration and customs enforcement. That complaint accuses Kenneth Cuccinelli of gross mismanagement, gross waste of government funds, and abuse of authority over the labor agreements he signed with the Immigration Agents Union the day before Biden's inauguration. Cuccinelli, who also lost several court cases and was found to be serving illegally, is alleged also to have engaged in several significant acts of misconduct. This highly unusual contract purports to irrevocably block the government's ability to challenge anything about concessions to the ICE union for the next eight years. The House is voting to strip Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments today. The move came after intransigence on the Republican side and evidence that Greene had advocated the assassination of key Democrats. Republicans have instead focused their attention on Liz Cheney, the number three Republican who voted to impeach Trump. Rupert Murdoch's Fox Corporation and three of Fox News' most popular anchors have been sued for defamation by an election technology company. Smartmatic, an election technology company, filed the suit in New York against the Fox Corporation, Fox News, and anchors Lou Dobbs, Maria Bartiromo, and Janine Pirro. The company's also suing Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, who made the case for election fraud as guests on Fox programs while representing Trump. The suit is seeking no less than $2.7 billion in damages and accuses Fox of conspiracy to defame and disparage Smartmatic and its election technology and software. In a related story, in an appearance on Newsmax, Mike Lindell, the MyPillow founder, launched a verbal attack on Dominion voting systems. In a sign that Dominion's lawsuits have had an effect on right-wing media, the Newsmax co-anchor Bob Sellers abruptly cut off Lindell and read a statement, quote, the election results in every state were certified. Newsmax accepts the results as legal and final. The courts have also supported that view. President Biden said he wanted Congress to pass his $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief plan, saying, quote, I'm not going to start my administration by breaking a promise to the American people. Biden said he was opening to narrowing the distribution of $1,400 stimulus checks to focus on poor and middle class people, but that he would not reduce the amount of those checks. The House also adopted rules to fine lawmakers up to $10,000 for bypassing security measures. All but three Democrats present voted in favor. All Republicans voted no. 
a postmortem conducted by Trump's chief pollster, said that Trump lost the election largely due to his handling of the coronavirus pandemic and voters' perception that he wasn't honest or trustworthy. Trump lost ground with every age group but had his greatest erosion with white voters, particularly white men. It is unclear if Trump has read the report. And Biden's approval rating is nearly a mirror image of Trump. He stands at 54%. These are the Biden files. Chuck Mertz chatted with journalist Anna Clark about her ProPublica article, The Unfinished Business of Flint's Water Crisis. In a week when the ex-governor of Michigan was indicted on charges of criminal neglect, can Flint's residents finally find a measure of peace? Find out on This Is Hell every Thursday and Sunday at 10 a.m. Anna also edited a Detroit anthology, a Michigan notable book, and Michigan Quarterly reviews not one without a special, not one without a special issue on water. She is a nonfiction faculty member in Alma College's Master of Fine Arts program in creative writing. You can find out more about Anna at AnnaClark.net, and you can follow Anna on Twitter at Anna Lee Clark. That's L-E-I-G-H, and I have got to get your Detroit anthology. When did that come out? <laughs> That came out, let me think, I guess it would be um, about six years ago now. Um, So it was uh, uh, before Detroit had come out of the bankruptcy um, and, you know, where for about a year and a half, you know, the city was going through the, you know, the largest municipal bankruptcy in American history and which had prompted this like huge wave of media coverage about the city, documentarians, there's all kinds of things. And um, the anthology was intended to be a kind of space for um, people rooted in the city to tell stories stories of their home themselves, right? As opposed to um, constantly being the subject of other people's stories. Well, I really, I definitely have to get that. I was uh, born in Detroit. I lived in, uh, was raised in East Detroit and uh, lived in Michigan for 25 years. I was born over on Six Mile in Maras over at St. John's Hospital. Um, So you know you're a local because you call it Six Mile. (laughs) See? See? Exactly. And Uh, some insider stuff. (laughs) That is some very deep insider stuff. So, uh... Uh, and we, I definitely want to get into, we'll be talking about the emergency financial ma- managers throughout this conversation. We'll get back to the great success they had in Detroit in just a moment. But you subs- you describe E. Yvonne Lewis on a hot July day in downtown Flint telling her story about what happened to her during the water crisis. You write, we and about 70 others had gathered where the Michigan Civil Rights Commission was conducting its 2016 hearings on how this Great Lakes city learned that its own water was a threat. Lewis's community health worker and a mother of three testified that she kept a crock pot in her bathroom. To take a bath, she filled the cauldron with bottled water, waited for it to heat, poured it into her bathtub, then repeated the process until she had enough to wash. The image of the slow cooker in her bathroom haunts me. One of many such stories I heard while writing a book about the crisis in Flint, where toxic water was delivered to a city of nearly 100,000 people for 18 months before the state acknowledged the problem. Why do you think that image haunts you so much? Of all the stories that you heard while writing Poison City, and you heard a lot of really horrible stories, what do you think it is about that story that particularly haunts your memories? Why is it that crock pot that haunts your memories? See, that's a good question. And in some ways, it's something I should probably talk to with a therapist. Um, but but the, it, this, the, this image, 
I think it, partly it's, it's because it just, it just startled me out, um, startled me all over again. This was the summer of 2016. So um, the Flint's water crisis, I mean, it had been something that people had been living with for more than two years, but it had been, um, had, it was also like well into the public spotlight. It had been documented. There had been all these stories. I'd been writing about it. And this was just one of those image, one of those like remarks that she made that day that just sort of like startled me all over again and helped me, um, remember like see anew how bizarre the situation is where a great lake city has learned that its own water is a threat and how it disrupts the most basic moments of your life um in 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 in, in creating a situation where um you know a 60 year old women woman is like kind of going through this like arduous process um just to get clean um it it, it just reminds reminded me of both the physical as well as the um, psychological emotional mental health toll of this um of this tragedy and you write how people had been exposed not only to high amounts of lead, a neurotoxin that is especially damaging to children, but a series of bacterial outbreaks, a Legionnaire's disease outbreak officially sickened 90 and killed 12. As Frontline documented, the number of those harmed in the outbreak is likely far more than that. Uh, now, those numbers, 90 sickened and 12 killed, I mean, those are horrific. But today's pandemic killing thousands daily and sickening many, many more may have left some people jaded. So we do not forget how horrible was the Flint water crisis. You mentioned Yvonne's story about the crock pot and boiling water for a bath. What was life like in Flint without safe water for nearly five years? Well, I mean, if you think about it, I. I... I mean, drinking water is something that many of us have come to take for granted and you don't even remember um, like how many intimate moments of your life it touches. So it's not just about, you know, replacing the glass of water you have at dinner with a bottle of water, which itself can be stressful enough. Um, but it also, um, you know, thinking about the ice cubes you use and the water you make you coffee and the formula you feed your baby and how you how you wash in the morning and how you wash your hands day to day. You can see in some ways how it's intimately related to the coronavirus pandemic in the sense of, of how we are um, access to water has been um, affirmed as this essential service, right? Like something that if, if everything else shut, shuts down, what still must a city do? Um, and one of that is providing water in part because when people are, um, people need that safe um, uh, water, certainly for their own uh, well-being, but also for the sake of the, the community, right? It's a, because it's a public health threat if people don't have access to safe, clean drinking water. And for people in Flint, it was this like, um, this, this crisis was instigated not by a natural disaster and not by some, some like strange new virus that came. It, it was instigated by a series of choices that caused and prolonged this crisis. Um, so it didn't have to happen. That's part of what's like, like so grievous <laughs> and part of why it's been difficult to um, really grapple with its legacy. It, it led to um, um, not just like a, a, a series of problems with the water, like you said, the lead, the Legionnaire's disease, which wasn't even made public for um, the two years of which it was an outbreak and wasn't documented as properly as it should have, which is, you mentioned the frontline documentary, There's, the cases are probably very much um, higher. Uh, 
um, and uh, were misdiagnosed as pneumonia. There's um, E. coli outbreaks. There was a, um, um, a problem with too much of a chlorine disinfectant that can cause uh, uh, cancer. There um, was, because the, the water was not treated properly, it led to the pipes corroding. So the infrastructure of this whole city was literally breaking down. Um, and to the point where even when Flint did like finally after a year and a half latch on to a safer drinking water source that was properly treated, that wasn't sufficient to end the crisis because the pipes have broken down. So it was like this like um, infrastructural gut punch <laughs> to the city as well, both the public infrastructure and people's infrastructure in their homes, their own water heaters, their own, you know, um, uh, plumbing and faucets and things like that, as well as the damage to their health and bodies. And, and um, like Yvonne uh, tells a story in, in the article you're describing, it's just one of those things where you, it will, it is something that people will live with every single day for the rest of their lives, you know, um, like every, illness, every like challenge, every ailment, they will wonder if it had something to do with exposure of the water, both what was documented and what they just don't know about, what we just don't know about. Um, with the young folks who are especially vulnerable to the consequences of lead poisoning, in many ways, we're waiting to see what happens when they grow up, to see what the effects were of, of this like added dose of vulnerability to one of the world's best known neurotoxins. Download complete. Now playing Eureka Cast Now. Inspire curiosity. Imagine science. This phenomenon, wherein a control group, a large control group, can have parapsychological uh, phenomenon occur through it, mm -hmm. is exactly what Gestalt parapsychology actually predicts. Gestalt parapsychology. Yes. Uh, in this field of uh -huh. parapsychology, it is understood that parapsychological phenomenon, i.e. astral projections, telekinesis, remote viewings. Right. Which are all different things? They are all various different flavors of, sure. of parapsychological okay. phenomenon. It's better determined and... and easily more easily seen through groups of individuals mm -hmm. in essence the whole is more receptive than its parts excluding of course once again these sort of visionaries that come along once in a lifetime like you know zoltan and simon amy fascinating so rowan ravine. ravine another one. Oh, um sure so so rowan what you're saying is that there's a field of 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 Psych psychology, parapsychology, parapsychology. Yes, that says that uh, a num say that says that you're going to get better predictions by a number of people guessing at something than one person guessing at something, and how this is this is some sort of proof of uh, a group think sort of mediumship. Well, that is, I suppose, one way to interpret it, but it's not so much that these individuals are guessing at things it's more that the whole will on average be able to exhibit a predictive behavior i see or a sort of a um knowledge gathering behavior this that is... might not other bit wise be applicable or seen on an individual scale sure this so... is the this is the psycho this is the the psychology the science behind like, ouija boards 
Eureka Cast Now, broadcasting Saturdays, 8 to 9 p.m., on Lumpen Radio. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.